Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor, Michael Norman. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. Welcome to week two of our question and answer series. Today I have Chris Scroggins with us. He's one of our missionaries and he's our resident theologian which means he knows everything theological. I'll never live up to that. (laughs) I bet you can do pretty good. I'll try my best. Okay, well, let me give you this question first. Okay. Is there a thousand-year tribulation, and when does it begin? Wow, okay, so that's actually a really easy question to answer. And the answer is no, there is no thousand-year tribulation. That's good, because a thousand years is a long time for tribulation. We dodged that bullet for sure. But what I think the, uh, the asker of the question really meant is they confused two things. Okay. One, they confused the tribulation, which Jesus references in the book of Matthew, mm-hmm. and then also Daniel references in, in chapter 9 of his book. Okay. And that is going to last for a period of like seven years. Seven's better than a thousand. Way better. And then the thousand year thing comes from Revelation chapter 20. And it's the millennial reign of Christ is what we call it. Uh, And that begins when the devil is bound and cast into the pit. And that allows Jesus to reign on earth for a thousand years. Okay, so our thousand year begins after the devil is thrown into the pit. Right. Which is why we get thousand years of peace, I guess. Right. And then the tribulation is only seven years. Correct. Depending on when the rapture happens. Yeah, yeah. But we'll answer that another day. Yeah, that's for pastor. All right, so you have a question. I do. So the uh, person asks, if I die and my husband remarries, what does eternity look like in regards to our relationship? Actually, that's a super common question. A very good question. In fact, when Jesus lived on this earth, he was asked the very same question by some folks. And so if we look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 30, we see them pose the question like this. There was a woman and her husband died. So she married his brother. But then after some time, the brother died and she marries the other brother. And so it kind of culminates down into verse 28, and they ask this specifically. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since all of them were married to her? But Jesus answers very specifically in verse 29. He replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So this is super difficult for our human minds to comprehend, but there will be no marriage relationship in heaven. All marriage relationships will cease, and they will be superseded by an amazing, intimate, powerful, everlasting union with our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's crazy to think that I won't be married to my wife. Right. But, I mean, she's going to lose me, but 
kind of get Jesus. That's that's a good trade. That's a fair trade, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So we have all eternity to be in union with our Heavenly Father. Okay, so we have a few more questions coming up, so stick with us. Hey, good morning. Man, I think you can trust that guy up there. He's wearing glasses, and that adds at least five IQ points, right? Okay. Hey, so uh, another question that we got, um, we actually got two questions that were very similar. Um, Both of them concerned women's roles. So the first question was uh, regarding the scripture, 1 Corinthians um, 1 Corinthians 14, and it, you know, it says women should be silent, and so we're going to look at that, but then the next question was, are women allowed to be pastors? And both of those are, the underlying question is regarding women's role within Christianity. So I figured we kind of lumped those together, and we'll hit those two scriptures real quick as well. So um, the first thing I want to say is that when you're interpreting the Bible, context is incredibly important, okay? I can't understate how important context is. Um, so the Bible, you have to remember, was written to a real-time place, people, and culture. Like, the, written to these specific people as well. Um, and so you have to take the Bible in context of all of that, plus context of itself. The Bible won't contradict itself. Lastly, the Bible, this is, hey, I'm going to save you all a couple years of seminary education here. You ready for this? Okay, write this down. The Bible can never mean to us what it was never meant to mean to them, okay? The Bible can never mean to us what it was never meant to mean to them, right? I think I wrote it fancy up there. I used whom because I wanted to feel smart. Anyway, so uh, first thing we're going to look at is uh, Genesis chapter 2. You know, God creates Adam and Eve, right? And so we look at this verse and we see that that God says, hey, I'm going to make Adam a helper, Okay, and so we see that and we're like, hey, helper, okay, like help me fold this giant sheet, right? I need help with that. Or, you know, help me put away the dishes, right? But that's not the kind of helper we're talking about. The Hebrew word there is azer, and it means rescuer, okay? It comes from a Hebrew verb that means to rescue or protect from death or danger. That's not just like a, you know, a help me carry a box. It's like a help the way that a heart surgeon helps you after you have a heart attack. Okay, this word, azer, is used 21 times in the Bible. Two of those times is Eve's relationship to Adam. The other 19 is God's relationship to Israel, or God's relationship to the patriarchs. That's not some kind of low-level help. We're talking rescue. Okay? Cool. Moving on. Uh, So in the New Testament, or Sorry, skipped ahead. Uh, we also have Joel in the Old Testament talking about, you know, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And God's saying, I will pour out my spirit on men and women. There's no distinction there. In the New Testament, we have a litany of verses that talks about equality in Christ. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Um, Neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. I mean, that's pretty plain and simple there. Paul's saying there's no difference there. Okay. Um, in Paul's letters, he's particularly uh, woman-friendly, actually. In Paul's letters, he mentions or commends about 40 people, okay, 40 people. Of those 40 people, 16 of them are women. 16, that's 40%. There's also debate, it could be 17, depending on how you, how you uh, interpret the name Nympha or Nymphas. You know, that's not a common Greek name, so we're not sure. So we'll call it 16 and a half. Um, okay. 
Another cool thing, Jesus, when he, when he uh, was resurrected, the first people he appeared to were women. At that time, did you know that a woman's testimony wasn't even allowed in court? That's crazy. But Jesus showed himself first to women. Uh, Mary, the sister of Martha, sat at the feet of Jesus. That's a very important phrase, to sit at the feet. That's the way that Paul describes his relationship with his rabbinical teacher, Gamaliel. He says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And here we have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. That would have blown people's minds. At the time, women were treated about like property. And here's Jesus with this woman among his disciples. Right? Uh, We also have Priscilla, who was a teacher of teachers. She's four out of six times she's mentioned. She's mentioned before her husband, Aquila. That's no small thing. Lydia was a founder of of the church in Thyatira. Phoebe is called a uh, deaconess. And then Junia, in Romans chapter 16, some translations will have this name as Junius, J-U-N-I-A-S, right? So what they're trying to do is make the name different. Junius is supposedly a male name, but you can go through all the Greek and Latin lexicon that you want, other smart people have done it, and you cannot find the name Junius. But you know what name you can find? The feminine name Junia. And Paul mentions her as noteworthy among the apostles. How big a deal do you got to be to be noteworthy among the apostles? Holy smokes, guys. It's also important to point out here that all of the early church fathers, particularly John Chrysostom, who lived in like, he died around 400 AD, he openly spoke of her as a woman. So there was no question for the first four centuries of Christian history, Junia was an apostle woman right? So let's get to the scriptures in question, right? So we kind of laid all that out. If y'all have questions, I'd be glad to talk to you after this. I got to move pretty quick, okay? Um, so let's move to uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. It's one of the scriptures that was specifically asked about. So uh, you can read it right there. Women should remain silent in churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So a couple funny things here. Uh, first thing I want to point out is that there's absolutely no law in the Old Testament that says women should be quiet. It's not there. I've looked. You can look too. We uh, are blessed enough to have a Bible in print. It's pretty cool. All right? Um, so uh, a second thing that I want to point out is that the, the reason that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians is because he received a message from a woman in the church named Chloe. That's in verse 1, I think chapter 11. Or chapter 1, verse 11, sorry. Um, so I, I just have trouble thinking that maybe Chloe wrote to Paul and said, hey, Paul, no one's telling me to shut up in church. Right? That's kind of awkward. So, um, and then also contextually, because remember, context, contextually, in the book, Paul spends a large amount of time talking about how we can interact in worship. How do we speak? How do we vocalize in worship? All of chapter 12 is about speaking in tongues and prophesying, right? Chapter 13 is about love. Then chapter 14, we're right back on the same topic. How do we act in worship? So Paul is assuming that people are talking, and he's encouraging it, isn't he? Right? Um, Culturally, if we're talking about the city of Corinth, it's pretty interesting, okay? Uh, Corinth was like the Las Vegas of the Greek world, Okay, um, and it was also the heart of the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. All right, I have to apologize. I majored in history. I have to use my degree somehow. Okay, um, 
I'm really only good for trivial pursuit. That's it. Otherwise, I'm unemployable. Um, so Corinth was the heart of the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. Y'all know who she is, right? The goddess of love, you know? And so if you can imagine a religion founded by like Vegas showgirls, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here, right? And so this worship service would be crazy. I mean, people being sensual and ecstatic and loud and crazy. And so that's the only religious reference point these people have. Because they don't get to travel around. They don't have podcasts. They don't have YouTube, you know. They had like scroll tube, you know. So they didn't know what churches were supposed to be like. So the only reference point they have are these crazy worship services. So what do you think church in Corinth was like? Right? Okay. Secondly, uh, Craig Keener, notable uh, theologian, he points out that at the time, men and women were generally separated in public spaces. So even at a house church, it's very likely that women sat on one side and men sat on the other. And like I've said, women didn't exactly have it great at the time and weren't commonly educated. So somebody's reading a letter or the bishop is giving a message and a woman doesn't understand a concept. Well, it's a big social faux pas for her to ask anyone except for her husband. But her husband's on the other side of the room and she wants to know what Jesus is saying. So what is she going to do? Hey, babe. Babe, what's transubstantiation? <laughs> right? And so Paul is, Craig Keener says, thinks that Paul is addressing that issue. He's like, hey, let's, let's wait till we get home and stop yelling at each other while someone else is talking. You know, that's something I'm working on with my four-year-old. If y'all want to help, please do so. All right. Uh, lastly, another possible uh, issue here is that Paul's being sarcastic. Okay? In uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul sarcastically quotes the Corinthian church. Okay, he says, uh, he says, food is for the stomach, the stomach's for food, but both are destined for destruction, right? And also in Corinthians chapter two, uh, 2 Corinthians, and also in the book of Galatians, we have Paul being super sarcastic, which is great because it justifies me being sarcastic. Praise God, amen, right? So it's not outside of his character contextually for him to be sarcastically mocking a masculine attitude. And if you dig into the Greek, uh, verses 36 to 39, I think it kind of reinforces that. But here's what we do know that Paul is specifically addressing how to act in worship. And he's assuming that people can jump around and be crazy and speak in tongues and give messages and prophecy. And so this clearly cannot be a carte blanche, women be silent. Because it contradicts everything else he says in that book and almost everything else he says in every other book he writes in the Bible. So it can never mean to us what it doesn't mean to them. Okay, very quickly and lastly... We're going to go to 1 Timothy 2.12. This is one of my personal favorite scriptures, right? I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, right? This one is abused all the time. So it cannot mean to us what it never meant to them, right? So Timothy lived in a town called Ephesus, okay? Ephesus, you might remember from Acts chapter 19. There was a huge riot when Paul showed up, started converting people. They're like, great is Diana of Ephesus, right? And they almost kill him. It's like... A big deal, right? So why are they saying, why are they talking about this Diana or maybe Artemis, depending on your Bible? Well, Diana or Artemis was the Greek goddess of the hunt. And she made her father, Zeus, promise that she would never have to marry and never have to submit to a man. And in Ephesus stood one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Diana. So if you can imagine a church founded by the most extreme and angry feminist you've ever met in your life, 
that's the kind of church that they had in Ephesus, right? I'm, I'm not kidding here. For men to even be involved, involved, they had to castrate themselves and dress as a woman. That's some next level stuff, yo. <laughs> Holy smokes. Would you like to come to church? No. All right. Second thing that we got to point out here, contextually, or this gets into a little bit of Greek. See that word authority? It's very important. It's very important. Usually when Paul writes the word authority, he uses the Greek word exousia. Here, he uses the Greek word dokeo, okay? Dokeo is a very, very strong word. It's only used this one time in the whole New Testament. And uh, to get an idea of what it means, we have to go outside of the Bible and into the greater Greek lexicon, okay? And the first time we see this word appear, it means to kill with one's own hand, oneself or another. Oh, that's a little strong. You know, by the time Paul uses it, it means to overpower or to domineer. So this isn't just like an authority. This is like a dominating, dictator, authoritative attitude, right? Secondly, that little uh, or right there, teach or to assume authority, the or in Greek, that one is an inclusive or. If any of y'all are involved in the legal world, you understand the, the concept of an inclusive or. So it's like a dictatorial teaching. Does that make sense? Like this dominating attitude. So let me ask you this. If we were to reverse the gender roles in this, in this verse, would we be okay with a man having a dicta- dictatorial authoritative attitude of teaching a woman? No. So what is Paul saying here? Because it can't mean to us what it never meant to them. Well, if you take the tenor of everything else Paul said, he's saying, hey, submit to one another. Love one another. Don't be mean, right? Pretty simple. Sorry, I didn't know the bell was on there. (laughs) I like to talk, so I have to guard against myself. So just to sum up here, right, is that we know from this verse that God doesn't want us to rule over each other. He doesn't want us to to be authoritative and dictatorial with one another, right? He says that all over his other books. Also, um, I need to point out that in in 1 Timothy, they were having a problem with false teaching. And that false teaching was coming through avenues of women. So specific time, place, people, culture. Paul's trying to address something here. But the principle we can pull out is don't be a jerk, right? That's, That's pretty good. So just to sum up, okay, We'll go back to Joel chapter 2. I will pour my spirit out on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So we see here, God makes no distinction. We have Paul commending 40 people in in his letters. 40% of those are women. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. We have Priscilla, who was a teacher of teachers. She taught Apollos, who was an apostle. We have Lydia, a church planner in Thyatira. We have Phoebe, who was called a bishop, a deaconess. And then lastly, we have Junia. The Bible is clear about the role of women. They're on equal footing. There is no distinction. All right? So for our next question, I think we got a video. So we'll go to that. One of the questions we've been getting frequently is I don't feel a specific calling for my life. 
So how do I know what God wants out of my life? Well, this is a great question with a fantastic biblical answer. Because God reveals to us exactly through his word what he wants for your life and from your life. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Chapter 8 in the book of Romans mentions that we can live a life free of condemnation if we put to death the things of the flesh and live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. It also emphasizes that we are more than conquerors through Christ, so we can put to death the things of the flesh and live according to the Spirit through Christ. Micah 6.8 also gives us really clear instructions. It says, God has shown you what is good. So what does the Lord require of you? So in other words, what does God want out of your life? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Matthew 5 says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. So let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is what God wants out of your life. Do this and you're following His will. Finally, we have resources available for you so you can find out the specific direction that God wants for your life. Our pastor has spoken about this previously and we've made this available to you digitally on our website. You can go to gracehill.cc slash listen and find them under the section, God's Will for My Life. Awesome. We, some of our questions have come directly from our congregation. Some have come online from people in the community who don't come to church here, but they uh, listen to us online. And so we endeavor to, uh, to answer as many as possible. And the truth is, we've had way more questions than we could possibly get to in a four-week period. But one of the next questions that's come up, and it's come up multiple times, is this. Is it a sin for Christians to get tattoos? Is it a sin for Christians to get tattoos? Currently, 21% of American adults have at least one tattoo, up from uh, 13% in 2003. We see them on entertainers. We see them in sports athletes. We see them on television. We see them, in fact, in a 2009 version of Barbie had a tattoo. So with such rising prevalence and such interest in this, it's rightful for Christians to have this question to ask about tattoos. So the short answer is this. The Bible doesn't say anything or at least anything definitive in regards to tattoos. It makes no specific reference to how we understand tattoos today. So some Christians, if you go online, you can find all kinds of things to proof text what you want to believe about tattoos. But let me tell you what I find having no tattoos, here's what I find. Some Christians condemn tattoos based on Leviticus 19.28, since in some of our popular English translations, it uses the word and seems to be uh, straightforward for us. In Leviticus uh, 19.28, in the NIV, it says, don't cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Other Christians would say that was Old Testament law, not New Testament grace, so that no longer applies to us so we can have tattoos if we want. When the truth is, both of these approaches are a little bit misleading for us. The, the, The answer to the tattoo question is truthfully, the Bible says nothing definitive on the topic in regards to injecting ink into your skin. 
Here's what Leviticus 19.28 says in the literal word-for-word translation. You realize the translations we have of the Bible are not necessarily word-for-word because in English to the original language would not be a fluid way to read. So it's brought about in a way to where it flows for us culturally today while endeavoring to keep the truth of Scripture in place. So with that in mind, here would be the literal translation of Leviticus 19.28. And cutting for the dead you will not make in your flesh, and writing marks you will not make on you, I am the Lord. Doesn't that sound like Yoda just a little bit? Marks you will not make. So the word here for writing literally refers to inscribed or engraved symbols on your body, and it's used only here. The word for marks is also literally only used here, and we're uncertain what the root word of that. So what it meant to them, it has to mean to us. And so we're unsure what the root is, so we're not totally sure what that word means. Plus the word tattoo didn't enter into the English vocabulary until somewhere around the 1700s, the late 1700s. So that's why the King James Version in the 1600s said this, ye shall not print marks on you. So that's what the translation was then versus what you see it as now. So with that, let me give you a little background. When we deal with questions, like we could easily say, here's a 30-second answer, or we could say, here's a 30-minute message, we're caught somewhere in between covering and answering questions. So let me give you a little background here. So the background is that Israel is coming out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they had a tattooing process in Egypt. They're going into Canaan, and Canaan had a tattooing or marking or cutting process and and ritual in their culture. So they're coming out of slavery, a land that did not follow God, into a land that's the promised land that is not following God either. And so what happened is in Egypt, they had a tattooing process or a marking process that was basically for women. And what it was is that they, they tattooed the parts of a woman who was, that was associated with fertility, their breasts, their inner thighs, and their bellies. And what they would do is they would imprint the fertility goddess Bess. And they felt like it was a good luck charm to help them get pregnant and protect them in the birthing process. So it was a religious thing they were doing in honor of a false god or an idol. Then they're going into Canaan, and archaeological evidence indicates that they had a marking of the body process that was more extreme than simply tattooing. It was a scarring, branding, gnashing, tearing type of, pro- of process in the skin that would leave scarring. And then what they would do is they would do this for ritualistic purposes to honor their gods and to mourn their dead and stay connected with those who had died. So in Leviticus, it seems to imply, hey, you won't make cuttings on your flesh for the dead or marks on your body. But in light of this, it was less about the tattoo as it was about the scarification than simply ink on the skin. So here's the deal. What the passage is really saying is don't do the things that pagans do. Don't look like non-believers so that people don't know if you follow God or follow something else. That's really what it's saying. So while the Bible is, is, so really if you want to know the short answer of it, is that really the Bible doesn't address it clearly. It's saying don't act like the pagans is the bigger principle here. 
How many of you know that still applies today? I'm not talking about tattooing. I'm talking about the actions to where people would go, are they a follower of Jesus or are they a follower of the world? Are they a believer, a fully commoted, uh, devoted, committed to believer, or are they a non-believer who lives like the world lives? So there are still things today where it says, don't do those things because it's connecting you to Egypt and Canaan. It's connecting you to things to where it makes you appear like you are not a follower of God. So while there's no clear passage addressing tattoos, biblically, we look at the bigger picture. It's hardly an unrestrained license for tattooing. So here's the deal. You need to think before you ink. And there's five things that I want us to cover. You like that, huh? Can I tattoo that on my forearm? Think before you ink. So there's several things that we need to think about before we tattoo. In fact, number one would be modification. That the body was made by God in God's image. And the Bible has a very high view of God's creation. Therefore, too much modification would seem to be changing of the creation of God. And so we have to be very careful with that. Second of all, what's our motive? If our motive is, I'm going to show mom and dad, I'll get a tattoo, they won't let me, I'll show mom, then that's not really a biblical correct view either, according to Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. It's also, if we're saying, okay, I need something to bring me fulfillment, and let me try this little tattoo, because that'll make me happy. That's not a right motive either, because our fulfillment is found in who we are in Jesus Christ. That we are redeemed in him, we are complete in him, that there is a fullness that comes from God in relationship, life and life abundant that comes from knowing Jesus. So really, what's our motive? The third thing would be modesty. Modesty isn't about a showing an amount of skin or the level of your dress or the how low your blouse is cut. Modesty, biblically, is about being self-promoting. So therefore, you're modest to not promote self. That's direct people's thoughts towards God and not towards you. That's one of the reasons that there's physical modesty because it's drawing attention to self versus God in the same way personality, in the same way other things. So set tattoos on certain parts of the body draws attention to that part of the body versus the Lord. So we have to think in regards to modesty in our tattoos. Next would be marketability. Does your employer want that? Is that something that would prevent you from moving forward in your career? Marketability. The next would be message. What are we saying about ourselves and communicating to the world? And then last thing, is this the wisest use of your money when we know that it's expensive? And then there's a whole culture of tattoo regret and removal is even more expensive than application. So is it a sin for a Christian to get a tattoo? The best I can find is no, but we have to think before we ink because we think, and as in everything, not just with tattoos, as in everything, is it honoring to God? Does that make sense? All right, so we can move on from there. Number two, the second question that I have for today that, was, that, that we are bringing out is this. Is that, does God encourage divorce? I'm going to read the whole question. Does God encourage divorce? By this, I mean in the situation where adultery was not the case, does God encourage divorce? 
So that's a great question in our society where currently one in two marriages end in divorce. Uh, 40% of first marriages end in divorce. Uh, and an interesting stat from Harvard University was that of people who pray together daily, go to church together weekly, and read the Bible together regularly, it's one out of every like 1,503 people, get, couples get divorced. So it's massively different when there's regular engagement in a Christian lifestyle. So it's a great question for us to ask, and so I want us to go through and give a background before we give an answer to the question. But if you have ever gone through divorce and had to work through those incredibly difficult things, today is not a condemnation type of thing. We're just working through an understanding of marriage and God's view on divorce. Not a condemnation type of day. How many of you know it's an incredibly difficult process to work through? Amen. So as we deal with this, we're dealing with it with grace. So here's the deal. God is the creator of humanity, mankind, and he's the creator of the union of marriage itself. And he laid out marriage as this lifelong union with a man and a woman. And God knows best, and he designed this in his plan. So marriage is the very first institution created by God. God created Adam first, realized that he kept losing his keys and getting lost in the garden and he couldn't find his way around and it was messy and so he said he needs a helpmate and so all the animals came along and it wasn't enough so he says he needs someone else and out of his rib he created Eve and God blessed their union and gave them rule over the earth. Here's what it says in Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. 28 says God blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this creation of marriage occurred prior to sin's entrance into the world, and it was a part of God's perfect design for mankind. So I want us to look at the issue a little more closely, specifically what the Bible says about divorce. And then we're going to walk on and see what Christ said about marriage, what Paul said about it, and then move forward and see what else the Bible says. Matthew, or Malachi in the Old Testament says this. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and well because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has the Lord not made them one in flesh and in spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he says this in, in Matthew chapter 19. It says that, the beginning, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and he will be united or he will cling to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. 
Then Paul comes along later on in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, and he says, husbands, submit to, mutually submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. You know, husbands, love your wives and give yourself to her the way that Christ uh, loves the church and died for the church. So in other words, it is this whole concept and this idea of mutual submission of 100%, 100% all in, and that the husband's to love the wife as an example of how God loves the church, and our union is to be an example of Christ's union with the church. So it's designed to be this mark of us to the world demonstrating the love of God. So the short answer to the question is no, God never encourages divorce. But there are cases where he allows divorce biblically. Number one, if you're taking notes, would be Matthew 19, 8, and 9. Basically, in the situation where there is a spouse that has been uh, uh, unfaithful, has had an adulterous affair, often the implication is that it's a continual, unrepentant affair that God allows divorce there. It's not required, it's not mandatory, but it is allowed biblically. Second of all, there is in 1 Corinthians 7.15 where there is a, a couple, one is a believer, one's not a believer, and that the non-Christian abandons the relationship in order to get away and the, says the believer basically says, let it be. That's, it, that's when the non-believer abandons and walk, walks away. And some scholars believe that the example given was where there was a couple that they were married and one became a believer after they were married and the second one didn't want to follow in that and walked away and that was kind of the example given there. So the Bible doesn't encourage it, but there are two situations where it's specifically allowed. And so with this, my encouragement to us as a church would man to be, pr- be praying for our marriages husbands loving your wives one part is it says submit one to another that you are loving your wife and caring for her and wives that you are loving your husband and submitting to him in regards to the home and that there is a you're working hard on your marriage that there's counseling christian counseling available there are opportunities to strengthen and bring about restoration and health and wholeness back to the marriage covenant the last question i want us to cover today and this is a great question is that ultimately, it's our seventh question that we're covering today. Which of the Gospels are addressed to Gentiles? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Which of the Gospels are addressed to Gentiles? And which Gospels are for the Jewish Christians? Are the Gospels for all of Christ's body today? So we see in the Bible that there are four Gospels. They were written to four different groups of people and that are, were existent then and existing now. So let's walk through these together. Really interesting. And when you begin to read them, I encourage you to go through and read the Gospels. It's, they are awesome. It makes you fall in love with Jesus all the more when you read about his life and the miracles and his death and resurrection. But they're written to four different audiences. So Matthew is written to Jews and the deeply religious people of the day. So it was written to the Jews who loved scriptures, who were understanding of the prophecies of the Old Testament, and that the Jews of that day were only going to listen to another Jew. What's interesting is that you realize Matthew, though a Jew, was prior to his conversion and following of Christ, was a tax collector, so he was probably hated by other Jews, yet Jesus chose him, and he was brought about to then bring the message of Jesus to the rest of the world, because Jesus came for people just like Matthew, 
who needed redemption. And so they, were, they would listen to Matthew because Matthew's one of them, though he was a tax collector. So an interesting choice there. So Matthew starts out his whole book in Matthew 1.1. I promise you one Christmas we're going to do a series on Matthew 1, the genealogy. You're thinking, man, that's the worst messages ever. When you understand what those genealogies are saying, it's powerful. It's awesome. But he writes and starts out the whole book by telling the genealogy of Jesus. So it is, you know... Lewis begat Daniel, who begat Michael, who begat Madison. And it's just like this seemingly boring thing. But he's writing to a Jewish audience who wants to know if the Messiah, Jesus, is tied back to King David. And in the genealogy, it shows he's tied back. And in fact, as he goes back, he uses the term son of David nine times in the book of Matthew to tie in to his Jewish audience. So Matthew wrote the book primarily for two reasons, to convince Jews that this was the Messiah. So he refers to the Old Testament. They knew the scriptures 50 times directly and 75 times referencing back to the Old Testament. Secondly, he wrote it to encourage Jewish Christians. So that's Matthew, the book of Mark. The book of Mark has lots of Latinisms, the Latin language, uh, and so it is writing to Romans. So the Romans, they didn't know a ton of Old Testament scripture, but they understood they were leaders and they were impressed with leadership and action. So what he does is he doesn't refer to the Old Testament a ton, just a few times compared to Matthew, but what he does is he writes an action-packed gospel about the powerful leadership and ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, Mark uses the word and almost 1,400 times because what he's doing is saying Jesus did this and this and this and this. Look at how awesome Jesus is to an audience that didn't really care about his genealogy. They were just saying, what's this dude? What's going on? All these powerful things. So he's writing to the Romans, and it's to a Roman audience that was, again, involved with impressed with power. So he spoke of Christ's deeds and actions while he's encouraging the Christians in Rome. And the way he wrote it, like most modern successful businessmen and businesswomen, that, that he was writing it in a way saying, God can meet your deepest needs of significance. Then we have the book of Luke, so Matthew to Jews, Mark to Romans. Luke is a physician, and he was Greek, and he's writing to a Greek audience. So the Greeks, they loved culture, they loved ideas, they loved beauty, they loved philosophy, and so he writes it in a way to where it matters for them. That for them, happiness could be found in the pursuit of truth. And he writes it in a way where it's filled with insights and interviews and songs and details that would fascinate the inquisitive mind. In fact, those today who are truth seekers can find a lot of joy out of the book of Luke. And so the Greeks are preoccupied with humanity and man and strong man. And Luke writes to them saying that Jesus is the example of the perfect human. He's perfect in all of his ways. And that he writes to them in that way to minister and to meet their needs. And then he verifies the miracles of Jesus. So again, he's writing to the Greeks. 
And then comes the book of John. If you've never read the book of John straight through, sit down and read it today. John's writing to everybody. John's writing it and he's addressing everyone and he's compressed it from this expanded story of Jesus. He's compressed it into just a shorter book to tell about how great Jesus is and how everyone needs him. He's writing here and the message really is he's saying that God loves all and he is offering all his son as their only hope. John's focus is this, is that Jesus is God in the flesh. It's called incarnation. That it's God in the flesh among us that he died on the cross for us. And it goes on, again, it's for everyone. And it's to that say that he loved his creation, us, so much that he, to show us his love, he sent his son to live among us and that he offers forgiveness through Christ. And it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible come out of the writing of John in John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What a great verse. And so can those gospels written to Jews, though we're not Jewish, probably in this room, though it was written to Greeks and written to Romans, do those things still apply to us today is the question. Absolutely. The message of Jesus is for all men. And then ultimately, John kind of confirms that by writing his book a little later. And he's saying, hey, this is for everyone. That whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So isn't it amazing how God is wanting to address every part of culture and society? He's writing to the Jews and the ones who want to know about the Old Testament. He's writing to the Greeks. He's writing to the Romans. The Romans impressed with power and leadership. And then John's saying, hey, here's a kind of a compressed version. These are the things I really want you to get together. And that he loves everyone. And he's offering the gift of salvation to everyone who will call on the name of Jesus. So are all those books for us? Absolutely. 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 So today, I want us to to join together. I want us to pray and say, Lord, help the message of the Gospels to totally impact my life. Would you stand with me today? I want us to pray and call out to the Lord and ask that these, these things would burn in our hearts. Father, today, Lord, you see the questions that were brought forth, Lord, both by our community and by our church, both those, Lord, who never have come in our doors, but they listen every Sunday and those who attend here every week. And Father, I pray that, Lord, we wouldn't live with fear, but with peace. We wouldn't live, Lord, uh, apathetic, but with passion. We wouldn't live with, you know, uh, questions, but with boldness. That, Lord, we would seek you and find you. Because John 3.16, that says that you loved us so much that you sent your son to live among us to die on the cross, to be born again, and that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but will inherit eternal life. Today, Lord, let us, Lord, hold to that. Let us call out to you. Let us embrace you as Lord and as Savior of our lives. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. 
If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.